Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Catherine Carstairs, Professor of History at University of Guelph, Canada. Hello, Dr. Carstairs, and welcome to our channel. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, The Smile Gap, A History of Oral Health and Social Inequality, published by McGill-Quinn's University Press in 2022. And, you know, we'll start by getting to, to know you and your work better. And my first question, very first question to you would be whether you could tell us more about how you came to this project and, you know, what got you interested in oral health, dentistry and public health to begin with? Sure. So um, I was actually, this was years ago, like probably almost 20 years ago, I was doing um, a postdoc um, on doping and, well, on a number of different topics, but one of the topics I was looking at was doping in sport. And I got interested in natural health products um, because a lot of the products at the time that were being used for sort of doping or some of the more well, contentious products, like whether this was doping or not, um, were being sold at health food stores. And so I got interested in the phenomenon of the health food store and what they were selling. And um, so I, 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 I proposed a project on the history of natural health products and health food stores. Um, and part of the project was to look at some of the major campaigns that um, were run out of health food stores. And I quickly discovered that a lot of the sort of anti-fluoridation campaigns of the 1950s and 60s um, had been run out of, out of health food stores. And so that got me interested in water fluoridation because I was really interested in the question of sort of, you know, here was this, you know, amazing public health measure, at least according to the experts, this amazing public health measure that would dramatically improve the, the health of children's teeth. Um, and yet sort of unusually for a public health measure, it was usually decided in the Canadian context through a public referendum. So cities across the the country had referendums on whether or not to implement water fluoridation. And usually um, when a city held a referendum, people said, nope, we don't want water fluoridation. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Despite the fact that, you know, it was going to have all these improvements in um, children's children's teeth. So I got really interested in what this said, because we tend to think about the 1950s and 60s as this time of sort of enormous promise and faith in science and medicine and technology. That's You know, the, the uh, antibiotics had just been invented. Um, there are all these new vaccines emerging. You know, we tend to think that people had a lot of faith and science in that time period. And yet, you know, when the Experts were saying, look, we've got this great scientific measure that's going to improve the health of your children's teeth. People were like, nope, we don't want it. <laughs> so I thought it was just a really interesting case study in sort of what was people's levels of, of faith in, in science and, and expertise. So anyway, as a result of that work on fluoridation, I spent a lot of time in the dental library um, at the University of Toronto looking at what dentists were saying about, about water fluoridation. And I came across this study which was the first survey of Canadians' oral health to be done. Um, it was published in 77, but it actually came out a little bit earlier. And it just looked at, you know, what is the state of Canadians' oral health? And I was actually really shocked to, to read this. So I'm, you know, middle-aged right now. I'm in my, in my 50s. I've been very fortunate. I've had great, you know, oral health. I had braces as a child. Um, I, you know, have all my own teeth. Uh, I've had all of the, you know, benefits of, of modern dentistry. And so I'm looking at this... Um, a study that was, you know, published when I was a child and thinking like, oh my gosh, the women, um, you know, who are being examined in this, this study, um, who are my age, I mean, like half of them had already lost all of their teeth. <laughs> and I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, that's like just such a huge difference in a sort of a person's quality of life. I mean, obviously if you lose your teeth, you can have dentures and um, they often look quite nice, but they, they're not a substitute for real teeth. And I just thought, wow, that's such a huge improvement in our lives and not one that we really talk about very much, right? Like, I think a lot of us know, I mean, if I think back to my childhood memories, of course, like my grandparents all had dentures and that was just a matter of course. 
Um, but I thought, you know, how much better is my life that I don't have dentures? Um, and so I, I sort of got interested in, you know, how we've seen these enormous improvements in our oral health, but also in the Canadian context where um, dentistry is not included as part of our much da- vaunted Medicare programs, you know, who was being left out of, of those improvements. And indeed, while we've seen you know, people's on a population level, we've seen people's oral health dramatically improve. We've got some huge gaps in care, which is why I called my book the, the Smile Gap. So there are people who have not been able to to benefit. Um, and I think, you know, as we see our oral health improve and everyone, you know, I look at my my students now in classes and they've all got these, you know, fantastic bright smiles with straight teeth. Um, if you have stained teeth or crooked teeth or missing teeth, um, it becomes even more of a liability. I mean, in addition to the discomfort um, often involved in having poor oral health, um, you know, these sort of aesthetics results of having um, problems with your, your teeth are ever more severe. It becomes more difficult to find employment um, and just sort of get along in the, the world in multiple ways if you have really visible oral health problems. Um, so in a way, um, you know, some of the inequalities are even worse now that, you know, so many of us have, have benefited um, from all of the, the wonders of modern dentistry for people who can't access that care. Um, it's become even even more difficult. So I was interested in kind of exploring those inequalities that have have emerged um, alongside um, the improvements have been, that have been made. So that's what got me interested in the topic. Along the way, I also have done a lot of work on other public health issues. So uh, I've been interested in sort of vaccination and industrial health and um, sort of campaigns to improve um, children's um, uh, well-being in other ways as well. So um, yeah, I've become over the years a public health historian, although that's not what I expected to become when I started my career. Wonderful. Well, you know, the, the better for, for our readers and listeners, right? But I, I hear the surprise in, uh, you know, a career that turned out a little bit different than what you imagined, right, at, at its beginning, um, as uh, as it seems, right? Um, but you know what as you're 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 talking i was thinking about you know the different standards in in terms of um not necessarily oral health but in terms of the aesthetics right of 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 teeth (laughs) if i may say so because uh right different parts of the world have different types of aesthetic perceptions and then you know in north america has this as you said right bright uh you know white uh kind of smile that um you know might be hard to to navigate for you know um people who come from different societies or from from different standards um yeah absolutely and i think even for us like i mean one of the things that you know i sometimes thought about is writing this book this may be getting a bit off topic but you know there's a lot of personality in people's teeth right like that front you know the people that have the uh front uh to the gap between their two front teeth and i think in a lot of cultures that's regarded as you know very very desirable yeah um, but now we close <laughs> up those gaps right yeah. <laughs> um and, we, and we've lost like a certain sort of personality and individual difference and uniqueness as like our smiles become more and more standardized. I completely agree with that. Um, and uh, I certainly have stories to share. But, you know, I'll get to, to the questions and, uh, you know, I'll save the, the anecdotes for later. Um, so the book comprises of six chapters accompanied by the introduction and the conclusion and um quote, pays attention to not just oral health, but also to the beauty culture associated with our mouths and teeth, end of quote. So the chapters discuss dentists' role in society, the profession's transformations, the ways in which personal hygiene improved in Canada, as you mentioned, as well as the changes in ads promoting toothpaste and smiles, among a few other themes. And the introduction, uh, entitled uh, Improving Smiles and Creating Gaps, lays out the roadmap. And before we start exploring each theme in detail, I wanted to ask you about the sources for, for this research. And, um, you know, a few minutes ago, you mentioned um, archives. Um, but, you know, I wanted 
to hear a little bit more details about how the research looked like in the archive and how um, did you find the most important materials used for this book? Because, you know, I was thinking like, well, you know, in graduate school or, you know, just kind of going around bookstores, did I see any books on dentistry or oral health? And I couldn't remember anything like that. So, you know, it's either poor memory on my part or maybe there's a, a challenge there. So I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah, I mean, there isn't a big literature on the history of, of dentistry. I mean, there is the kind of like more sort of celebratory professional history that exists. Like in the Canadian context, we have like histories a couple of a couple of the dental schools in Canada. We have a history of dentistry that was written in the 70s by the former um uh, secretary of the Canadian Dental Association. So there's that kind of, of work that's that's been done. Um, and then recently, um, a dentist who's currently the, the dean of the Schulich Dental School at um, Western, um, he's written a book that looks at some of the sort of public health programs in, in dentistry. So um, it's a bit of a, a bit of an emerging field, but it's it's small to, to date. And actually, the archival record, I would say, is pretty thin. I mean, I found things, um, especially around sort of public health campaigns and uh, in there's some in the National Archives in Canada, Library and Archives Canada. Um, there's some in municipal um, archives. Um, Saskatchewan has actually done a great job of collecting uh, the some organizational um, records, like the, the Saskatchewan dental hygienists and the, the dental therapists in Saskatchewan have their records there. Um, although Saskatchewan seems to be pretty unusual in that respect. Um, but Saskatchewan was actually the most innovative in terms of its um, oral health health sort of policies and provisions. So perhaps not surprising that they've been um, really good at collecting their their records. Um, So in the end, I'd say the main uh, source base that I used were the sort of dental and medical journals, especially the Journal of the Canadian Dental Association, just to sort of trace what was happening over, over time. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at the popular press as well because I was really interested in sort of what was the patient experience of of dentistry. And I got a lot more of that from the popular press than I could from the dental journals, which was obviously much more focused on the the profession and new developments in the field and, and things like that. Um, but the the popular press, especially women's magazines, with all of their advertisements, um, gave me a strong sort of sense about how people's attitudes towards their teeth were changing over time, and also how businesses were trying to sell, um, you know, a message of of oral health. So those became quite important. Um, and then there was like a variety of other sources that I was able to draw on that were quite fun. So um, for the later part of the book, I looked at some of the makeover television shows that have become very popular in the 21st century. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at phone books, actually, <laughs> um, because if you look at the the yellow pages of phone books, you can sort of see what happens when dentists start advertising and what they're advertising. You know, so if you're flipping through the phone book, deciding which dentist to visit, um, you can sort of see how they're they're um, sort of selling their products, whether they're towards families or whether they're you know more geared towards sort of cosmetic dentistry. Um, for the earlier part of the book, I spent some time looking at cookbooks because I was curious about what people ate, because obviously nutrition has a big pat- impact on people's oral health. Um, I did some oral interviews. Um, I started the project thinking that oral interviews would be a much bigger part of it than it turned out to be. Um, but interviewing dentists and dental hygienists was was still quite helpful in terms of sort of getting a sense of how those professions operate um, and the changes that they saw um, over time. Um, So that was very helpful. Um, There's also a whole bunch of government reports. Um, I also looked at etiquette guides, you know, because that's interesting too. What did they say about cleaning the teeth? And was that, you know, seemed to be an important part of of etiquette? So in the end, there was quite a wide range of, of sources that went into the book. But um, relatively few archival sources compared to, you know, other book projects that I that I've done. 
nonetheless fascinating <laughs> to to hear, to hear about and to 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 think where you know where are the places that you could get advice from or you know get advert ads right so it gets advertised or or, or not and uh, of course the n- nutrition part has changed right a lot from the 60s till now and i guess there's also this this aspect to it that could uh, could provide more books right that uh, uh, talk about oral oral health absolutely um, and I think we're, we're getting into actually this part, right? The oral health education um, and uh, the ads uh, with, with chapter one uh, entitled Learning to Smile, Oral Health Education, Advertising and Brushing. And the chapter draws a picture of the first few decades into the 20th century in Canada and looks at diet, oral education, dentistry, and here I would say economic and social class in relation to advertising and changing personal habits in order to understand the, these, these transformations that happened for Canadians at the time. And I was wondering whether you could walk us through the most important events of these decades in terms of oral health. Yeah, sure. I mean, again, this is one of the things that you know was quite surprising to me as I was researching the book was just kind of the amount of suffering that people went through with regards to their their teeth. I mean, it's not super well documented, but um, in the early part of the 20th century, um, the Toronto School Board hired a dentist to do inspections of the, the children's teeth in you know, elementary school. And I mean, again, it's, to me, it's just quite shocking how um, much these kids were in pain because of their their teeth. So, you know, the majority of children that were studied could not chew properly because of, you know, cavities and other problems in their mouth. Um, at one of the schools in a more like working class area of Toronto, 61% of the children examined had abscesses in their mouth. Um, and like, nearly half of them had pus exuding into their mouths from their infected teeth, right? So, I mean, you know, not only, they didn't talk a lot about pain in that study, um, they were just talking about, you know, the horrific state of people's uh, oral health. But you think about that and you think, you know, these were like seven and eight-year-olds who must have been in a lot of pain from their from their teeth. Um, so, yeah, it was really pretty, pretty awful. And, you know, I, you see those pictures, right, of, you know, people with a handkerchief tied around their head because of their, their toothache. And I mean, that's one thing I sort of thought about a lot, too, is, you know, I think when you have a pain in your head like that, right, it's, it's, it's a hard pain to let go of or forget or put aside, right? It kind of, it kind of absorbs you. Um, and just like the amount of suffering that people must have had as as a result of, of rotting teeth. And you can see why, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, when they had the option to have their teeth out, they were just like, yes, take them out. Because, um, you know, they were the source of a lot of a lot of pain and, and suffering for for people. So, um, you know, that was one of the things that that really struck me. But then I was interested in sort of, okay, how did things get better slowly? Um, And, you know, one of the ways that things start to improve is that people start to brush their teeth more more frequently. Um, Dentists start recommending um, that people brush their teeth. And um, by the 20s and 30s, there's just a huge explosion of toothpaste advertising. Um, so if you and, and toothpaste ended up being sort of one of the most heavily marketed cosmetic products on the the market. Interestingly, toothbrushes <laughs> were not nearly. I mean, they, you certainly see advertisements for toothbrushes, but they're not nearly as common as the advertisements for toothpaste. Um, and that's despite the fact that dentists at the time were like there's no value to the toothpaste. Like just make up your own toothpaste at home. Um, and they've regularly provided recipes for, you know, how you could make up a quite a good toothpaste at, at home. Um, but clearly people liked buying the toothpaste. <laughs> um, and, I don't know, and obviously it makes it a more brushing, a more pleasant experience. If you have a nice taste, nice uh, tasting uh, paste on the, the end of the, the brush. And so, you have, um, you know, you'd had toothpaste advertisements in the early part of the 20th century, but they tended to be kind of smaller black and white ads. 
But by the 20s and 30s, you're getting these full page color advertisements, you know, promising um, beauty and, you know, jobs and success in life um, if you start brushing your teeth. And of course, these advertisements also promised, um, you know, that they were based in science, that these toothpastes were recommended by by dentists um, and uh, that, you know, they were going to work marvels for, for your teeth. Um, you know, a lot of that, I mean, the dentists were driven crazy by these advertisements because they're like, a toothpaste can't do these things. Um, but uh, I think at the same time, even though they drove the dentists um, a bit nuts, um, they are actually very effective in terms of persuading people that, you know, daily toothbrushing was, was a good idea. And, you know, to go back to that study that I mentioned of, you know, Toronto school children um, that was done, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, it seems like at that point, only about, you know, just over 10% of these children were brushing their teeth daily. Um, but by World War II, it does seem to be like the most people are brushing their, their teeth daily. So something changes in those interwar years. And, you know, there's obviously also campaigns by dentists at the time. They're going into schools and they're promoting toothbrushing and you're seeing it being... Um, talked about, you know, when dentists um, have the option of advising the public on what they should do, they're certainly advising them to brush their teeth. But I suspect the bigger influence was actually all these like very attractive advertisements, right, that made it seem that, you know, brushing the brushing your teeth would lead to to beauty and success. And a lot of the advertisements were just really well done, right? They some of them were very funny. Ipana was one of the most um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's not a very popular toothpaste any, anymore, um, but it was the leading brand in the 20s and 30s. And they had all of these advertisements in the 30s that would show women like biting into like a T-bone or a big stick of celery or something like that. And the ad would say, you know, um, that, you know, etiquette advisors tell you that this is shocking, but your dentist tells you that, you know, this is a good thing to do because at the time, um, dentists really recommended that you spend a lot of time chewing hard foods, that that was going to be good for your teeth. And, you know, instead the advertisement would say, well, you don't need to do that. You don't need to sacrifice your um, social standing by, you know, biting into a huge stick of celery. Um, instead, you can just use Ipana toothpaste and, you know, that'll massage your gums for you. And so you don't need to um, eat these kinds of kinds of foods. Um, so, you know, they, they had a good sense of humor to them as well as being very, very um, compelling. So um, I think that the advertising had a big impact on getting people to brush their teeth. The other thing that we start to see in this time period is, of course, attitudes towards diet are changing. So um, in the um, interwar year, year, years, you see the discovery of many vitamins and minerals. People start talking about like optimum and nutrition um, and needing to to eat more vegetables and fruits and less carbohydrates. I mean, in the you know early part of the 20th century, it's kind of shocking just how much bread people ate, right? Um, and this was, of course, especially true of working class families who couldn't afford um, much other than than bread. But I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting was like a sort of an article that looked at people's diets and like costed various foods and the calories that you get out of various foods. Um, you know, the only vegetable that they even talked about was potatoes, right? Um, so people's, people really ate a lot of, of bread and carbohydrates and sugar. Um, and of course, that wasn't very good for their oral health either. So as diets gradually improve, which, you know, despite the Great Depression, you know, people do seem to actually start eating a more varied diet in the interwar years, um, that starts to improve people's oral health as as well. Amazing and fascinating at the same time. And, you know, as you're, you're talking about bread and, and potatoes, um, also remember there are some, some documentaries I was you know, listening to uh, a long time ago, um, talking about sugar uh, candy that was, you know, once sugar became more popular that, you know, you had this minty flavored sugar pills that you would just, you know, eat as a palate cleanser. Um, and they were advertised as well in France, at least for um, 
you know, taking care of your teeth. And I thought like there must be some sort of irony there. Taking care of your teeth with sugar is definitely, you know, not on the, um, you know, gentle side, let's say. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, improvements have, have come. And uh, you mentioned um, the fluoridating of, of water, the, the process, and we get to that in chapter two, um, that it's also entitled Fluoridating Smiles, Transforming Oral Health. And here we, we, hear, we, we learn about this process and its importance for dental health. And I don't know much about it, so I was very curious, um, you know, to, to ask you and to see how this, this process came about and what were the public reactions to the fluoride drops, the tablets, uh, but also the fluoridated toothpaste. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, the, uh, the sort of, you know, dentists were big fans of water fluoridation, right? And this was because it most closely emulated what happened in in nature. So um, dentists had realized that, you know, communities with um, one part per million of fluoride naturally occurring in their water supplies actually had much better teeth than communities that didn't have any naturally occurring fluoride in their water supplies. And so they were like, well, we could, you know, artificially, um, change the the water supply so it had this one part per million uh, of fluoride in it so it would you know replicate what was happening in in nature and other communities and we could you know dramatically improve people's um, oral health but unfortunately um, as I mentioned before the public was not quite as convinced that you know their their water supply should be you know t- as it was often described tampered with in this way um, you know famously, um, broadcasters like Gordon Sinclair railed against, you know, sort of rat poison being like funneled into the the water supply. Um, in in Quebec, you saw a lot of uh, opposition to um, water supply by you know health food um, gurus like Jean Marc Bunet. So um, there was a lot of opposition to to water fluoridation. So ultimately, sort of even at the height of water fluoridation, you only get about 40 percent of Canadians accessing fluoridated water. Um, Dentists were a little slow um, to embrace the idea of fluoridated toothpaste. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, one was just they wanted to replicate the benefits of fluoride as they existed in nature. So, you know, they wanted, uh, you know, they thought that was the better way of, of accessing fluoride. Also, they thought that the um, benefits would have to be sort of uh, systematic. So you'd have to actually consume the, the fluoride. Rather, now it's known that it, the benefits are largely topical. So um, they, you know, didn't really think fluoridated toothpaste would have a big impact. And this was partly because, as I mentioned before, they were quite skeptical of toothpaste, right? They had been looking at all these like um, elaborate claims of toothpaste manufacturers. And a lot of them had been sort of railing against this for a long time about these false claims of, of toothpaste. Um, and also some of the early experiments with um, fluoridated toothpaste didn't show much effectiveness. But eventually they hit on a formula that, that did work um, and showed results. And then you get the launch of Crest uh, toothpaste in the, the 50s. This is the, some of people will maybe remember the famous commercials if they're older like me. Um, remember the famous commercials of kids you know, running home to their parents going, look, ma, no cavities. Um, and uh, that was a huge campaign. It was showing uh, families that you know they could save tons of money on dental bills if they adopted the use of Upcrest toothpaste. Colgate quickly um, followed suit, and so you got a real change in the toothpaste market. Actually, as fluoridated toothpaste um, come to be widely adopted. And now, actually, some of the international research um, suggests that, you know, fluoridated toothpaste have actually been the most influential um, intervention, more so than fluoridated water, mostly because, you know, outside of a few countries where water fluoridation was widely adopted, um, a lot of people were skeptical about water fluoridation, right? A lot of a lot of European countries never, never adopted it. Um, so, you know, internationally, fluoridated toothpaste actually seem to have been the more um, successful intervention. Um, 
there were a number of other ways that people thought about getting fluoride um, to children as well. So um, there were fluoride drops. Um, I actually had these as a as a child because I was born in um, the uncommun unfluoridated community of of Calgary, which actually had, I think four referendums on, on water fluoridation in the 60s and 70s, more since actually. Um, it's been a very controversial area a topic in, in Calgary. Um, but my parents who, you know, believed in the experts, <laughs> um, they uh, thought it was, uh, you know, ridiculous that Calgary didn't have water fluoridation. So they gave me fluoride drops as as an infant. And, you know, lots of, lots of children like me who lived in unfluoridated places would have had um, you know, these fluoride drops or, or tablets. Um, there was some concern about them because there was a risk of poisoning. Um, so, you know, like anything in the home that could be could be lethal at too high of, of doses and they had to be managed carefully. So um, lots of people didn't really think that they were a great alternative to water fluoridation. Um, another thing that starts in the 70s, and I was surprised when I first started working on this book, you know, what people remember, right, of their, their, their youth and um, uh, their dental care. But one of the things that really um, a lot of people my age in particular remembered was these um, switch, swish and spit programs. <laughs> um, they were called, I never, I was never exposed to them myself, but in large parts of Ontario, um, in parts of BC, they had these. And so basically uh, a, a fluoride nurse would come into the school and give you a little solution of fluoride. You were supposed to like swish it around in your mouth and then spit it out in another cup and then rinse with water. Um, so, um, and those were inspired by studies that had been done in Scandinavia. Um, they start to be cut back when you start to see some cuts in children's oral health programming in the, in the 1980s. So you have these, those, these fluoride rinses. You also get like fluoride gels and fluoride varnishes um, that children would get if they, you know, were lucky enough to be able to visit a dentist on a regular basis. So, um, you know, they, they still have these today. So lots of people listening to this will probably be familiar with them, but you'd have these, um, uh, cups that you could put the gel in and then you'd have to sit with the gel on your teeth. Um, now varnishes are, are more common. So, you know, dentists really investigated a bunch of different ways of, of getting fluorides um, to, to children and then increasingly to adults, as well as they began to realize that it could have a beneficial impact on um, adult uh, oral health uh, as well. Initially, it was really thought that the benefits would be for children, again, because they thought it was um, systematic and you had to like consume it. Um, but once they realized the benefits were topical, that, you know, they can be beneficial to to adults as well. So, you know, now many of us will be exposed to fluorides in a variety of different forms. So, you know, most Canadians brush their teeth with the fluoridated toothpaste. Um, they might drink fluoridated water, um, depending on where they live. Um, or, you know, I live in Guelph, which is unfluoridated. Um, but um, I assume that, you know, when I drink a, a beverage, um, it'll often actually be bottled in Toronto, which is fluoridated. <laughs> um, so I probably do get a little bit of fluoridated water, um, even though I live in an unfluoridated community, um, as well as obviously fluoride treatments of the dentist and all that kind of thing. So we get a lot of different fluorides, um, and this does seem to have um, had a pretty beneficial impact on our, on our, oral, on our oral health. Absolutely, I think so. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not even knowing, right, um, where we get our, uh, our uh, fluoridated uh, sources, right, from, as you, you were saying, that uh, beverages are bottled in different areas that have different policies, right, towards water, and we just, you know, drink it, and it's fine, right? Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's one of the interesting things, right? Because, you know, when the first studies of water fluoridation were done, they showed these enormous improvements, right? Like kids' cavities went down by like 60%. So um, it was really dramatic in terms of the promise of water fluoridation. But contemporary studies don't show a huge difference between fluoridated and unfluoridated communities. Um, there is a difference, but it's, it's much smaller than it, it used to be. 
Um, and, you know, it's unclear, you know, that's because we have so many other like fluorides as well as this issue of, of the halo effect of, you know, drinking fluorides from um, other communities than the one that you live in and things like that. So it, this, the whole picture has become a lot more complicated than it was uh, when the first water fluoridation studies were done. Absolutely. And I think, right, also access to um, to all sorts of other products, right, that, um, you know, chewing gum, I'm assuming, or, you know, just kind of different habits that would would help in, in diffusing, you know, the, the amount of, of sugar or the amount of, um, I don't know, harmful um, substances, right? Um, but what I wanted to get to was um, this, uh, this idea of access to, to the dentist and, um, you know, how it's covered through uh, our insurance our health insurance, and that's actually the topic of Chapter 3, right? Sub, uh, subsidizing Smiles, Public Dentistry for Designated Groups. Um, and here we, we get to find out more about the, the Canadian health system and dentistry's integration or lack thereof into the national fold. Um, and, you know, I was curious here to know more about the what were the main struggles in having dental coverage as part of Medicare and what were some of the reactions from the professionals to, to such efforts? So, yeah, so as you know, like most European countries, Canada has a program of, of um, publicly funded um, Medicare. Um, so, you know, unlike what we what we see to the United States, the Canadians tend to be very proud of our, our Medicare system. Um, but actually, it's relatively incomplete, our Medicare system, because it doesn't include Pharmacare, which many other you know programs internationally do. Um, it really only covers, you know, if you need to go to a doctor for a physician visit um, or if you need to um, go to go to a hospital. Um, and this is because the implementing Canada uh, uh, Medicare in Canada tended to be quite complicated. So under our Constitution, um, health is a provincial responsibility. Um, so. There was a lot of constitutional wrangling involved in the introduction of, of Medicare. A lot of Canadians were sort of fully in support of it from the sort of 40s onwards, but it takes until 57 for us to get a program whereby the federal government will start to cover um, the costs of provincial governments who start to provide for hospital care for their their residents. And it's only in 68 that we get physician um, visits covered. So it's relatively recent, really. Um, and there was a big royal commission done in the mid-60s um, that led towards the adoption of Medicare in, in 1968. And it looked into the issue of whether or not things like um, pharmacare and denticare should be um, included in Canada's um, Medicare system. And one of the concerns at the time was there just wasn't enough dentists, actually. Um, there was a real shortage of dentists in the 1950s and 1960s. And they thought, well, you know, we, we can't possibly um, cover this. And so they said that, you know, it's what they recommended instead was a program of children's dental care that would sort of begin with five-year-olds and then sort of you know, get a new year, a new, um, uh, you know, expand it to the following year to five and six-year-olds and the next year, five, six and seven-year-olds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that actually never happened. What did happen is that, you know, Medicare got implemented in 68 and very quickly costs start to skyrocket and the federal government, you know, starts to um, accumulate um, increasing deficits by the 1970s. And that sort of opportunity to expand on, on Medicare is, is lost. Um, so, you know, part of what what happens is just sort of the gradual nature of, of Canada's um, Medicare system. Um, another piece of it was that the dentists did not want Denticare at all. <laughs> and now, this wasn't super unusual. The, the doctors weren't super keen about Medicare when it was introduced either. So um, this was in keeping with um, sort of you know, professional opposition to state, what they saw as state interference or what they worried would be state interference in their um, medical practices. And so the dentists actually, you know, ended up feeling quite lucky that they had been left out of, of, of Medicare. 
And um, so they've never been sort of big promoters of, of being included, even in children's dental care programs. So um, a number of provinces did start to um, cover children's dentistry. Um, and they did that in a variety of different ways. So the most innovative was the province of Saskatchewan, which said, you know, actually, like they looked internationally at what was what would have happening. And New Zealand had long had a very innovative program for children's dentistry, where they had dental nurses um, that were specifically trained in children's dentistry um, who went into to schools. So Saskatchewan emulated that program. They trained um, dental nurses who later became known as dental therapists um, in, you know, the sort of the more limited range of tasks that children's dentistry generally requires. Um, and then they actually, you know, set up um, dental clinics at schools. So super easy for children and their parents, right? You didn't have to pull your kid out of school to go to the dentist. Instead, like the, de the dentist or the dental care was, was right there. Um, the dentists did not like that. <laughs> um, they they thought that um, you know the dental therapist needed to be under the direct supervision of a dentist. Um, they sort of felt like they were being you know cut out. So the dentists were bigger fans of programs like the one in Quebec, which you know covered. Um, treatment in uh, the dental office, the private dental office. The trouble with that, though, is that, it, you know, there's still obstacles to, to care. You have to be able to get to the dentist's office during the school day um, and the work day for, for parents. So generally, I mean, although those programs were, were nice for people who could take advantage of them, um, they didn't end up having near the degree of coverage that something like the, the children's program in Saskatchewan had. Um, so anyway, you do get a number of um, provincial programs for um, children's uh, dentistry, um, but then even they start to get cut back um, in the, the 80s and, and 90s. So, you know, right now we've got a pretty complex <laughs> um, uh, situation across the, across the country. But of course, most recently, the federal government has decided that it will um, cover uh, dental treatment for low, lower income families under a certain threshold. Um, but I think, and again, there's going to be problems with access with that program, at least as it's currently being unrolled. They promise that there'll be changes to it. Um, but, you know, right now, parents have to pay for the dental treatment up front and then they get reimbursed on their taxes. And, you know, for, for families, you know, who are feeling the pinch right now um, with inflation, I think that's going to be hard for them to, to pay up front for the money for, for dentistry. So hopefully they'll come to a better solution for, for that. Um, so yeah, we, um, you know, never really got um, any kind of comprehensive dental care program in Canada. There's some promises of, of better delivery uh, now, but um, dentistry has remained pretty much a private in the, you know, private hands. I can totally confirm that uh, seeing, uh, seeing the insurance, uh, you know, that uh, I, I have that it's different, right, than the insurance we have for, you know, um, well, going to the ophthalmologist as well, right, going to the dentist, and then you have the general, um, right, health insurance that is um, also province specific, as you, you said. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to navigate. And I guess, you know, when you have an emergency, uh, also with a child, you, you don't really want to think of all these intricacies. And if it were simpler, then I think it would be would be better right um yeah and i think you know one of the things that i thought was that i learned about in in researching this book too is that you know uh uh the oral health of immigrants to canada declines after they arrive in canada and you know part of that seems to be the sort of difficulties of of navigating quite a complex um dental care system right Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the wait list sometimes is, is quite long. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all a, a world in itself. <laughs> and, um, right, it, when we're also talking about linguistic barriers, um, I'm, you know, because the, the, um, the, the terms, right, are also different from one, even from Canada to United States, I think they're different kind of 
terms sometimes. Yeah, and that's interesting. One of the things that I also learned about was that a lot of, um, you know, now that, you know, international travel is is cheaper than it certainly used to be, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, that a lot of people are actually returning home to get dental treatment um, rather than seeking it in Canada, partly because, you know, there's a belief in some communities that dental treatment at home is better than it is in, in Canada. Um, but also, I think that speaks to the sort of, you know, linguistic difficulties, the understanding a new healthcare system. Um, there's a variety of way, reasons why, you know, it might just be more comfortable to get dental treatment when you're when you're visiting home than it is to actually seek it out in Canada. And cost, too. It's often much cheaper in other countries than it is in Canada. Yes, I totally, totally agree with that. And I also think it, it's a matter of approach, um, medical approach, because... Um, I think North America is definitely uh, more on the, um, let's say, more aggressive type of approach. For example, if a, if a tooth, um, you know, is cracked, then m- most of the dentists will will uh, advise you to just take it out and replace it, have an implant. Uh, whereas other countries would have a more, um, you know, approach that would say, okay, just save the tooth. You know, if you can, just patch it out and just save it. Like, don't don't go to for the implant, which is, you know, more costly and also takes more time and, you know, more visits to the doctor and so on. So I think, um, you know, when people hear like, oh, I needed to take it out and put an implant in then and the cost of it, right, would be more inclined to just wait and go home, right, and and, and have it um, done there with a different approach. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and you know that that gets us to to insurance back, right? In chapter four, um, that uh, is entitled "Insuring Smiles: The Expansion of Dental Care and Its Limitations." And I think here the title just speaks for itself. And I'll just ask you to expand on the increase uh, in inequality between the urban and rural population in terms of access to dental care, and how did these inequalities deepen as oral health became a much more quotidian preoccupation? Yeah, sure. So I'll just mention that, um, you know, dental insurance really starts to come into the scene in the 1970s. Um, and this is partly because, you know, union groups who'd fought for, you know, physician care coverage and things like that, now that that was being covered at a provincial level, um, they start fighting for dental coverage. So the first groups to get um, dental insurance are either um, you know, people, members of, of quite large union groups um, or professionals who had it as part of their sort of employee benefit uh, packages. So in the Canadian context today, you have about 70, 60, two thirds of people have access to um, dental insurance. And that's been kind of a, a slow growth from the um, 70s to the to the present. Um, but Generally, people in rural areas are much less likely to have dental insurance than people in urban areas. And this partly speaks to the kind of work that people do. You have lower rates of um, unionized workers in rural areas um, and less people working for large um, professional organizations that provide benefits and things like that. So, um, you know, as, as a result, we do see significant gaps um, between urban and rural areas. Um, And, you know, the insurance is a big part of that, but it's not the only reason why we see gaps um, in urban and rural areas. It's also because dentistry is is private in, in Canada, right? So it's quite expensive to establish a dental practice. You know, if, even if you compare it to like a family physician, say, a dentist is going to have a lot more specialized equipment, expensive equipment in their office than a family practitioner, for example. So these um, dental offices are quite expensive to, to set up. Um, dentists, as a result of changes that happen in tuition frameworks in Canada. Um, Dentists are often now graduating with huge amounts of debt from uh, dental school as well. And so they're under a lot of pressure to make sure that wherever they establish a dental practice is going to be a profitable location um, to uh, sort of establish their business because that's what that's what it is. And, you know, in rural areas, you're just less assured of that client 
space, you know, partly just because you don't have as many people um, in, a, in a given area, but also because of the lower rates of, of insurance. Um, and so, you know, dentists themselves tend to be very disproportionately located in, in urban areas, um, which means that, you know, in addition to the obstacles of, you know, not having in insurance, there's also the obstacle of you need to travel much further to, to get um, dental care too, um, and especially if you need specialist care. Um, and I saw this, you know, particularly with people with disabilities um, who needed specialist care at the dentist. If you're a person with a disability in a rural area, it's really, really difficult to access care. I can to <clears throat> I'm sorry, I can totally believe that. And um, it's it's worrisome still to, to think that, you know, there's such a huge gap between um, the rural and the, the urban population, uh, but also within, you know, from, from smaller cities to bigger cities, right, more affluent cities. I think there's definitely a, a difference. Um, and, you know, if we're if we're continuing the, the, the conversation into the chapters, right, when we're thinking about the elderly um, mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the nursing homes, um, that's a, you know, that's that's also a different story and also a worrisome one. And I wanted to, to ask you about it uh, as chapter five um, is called Aging Smiles, Dentures, Implants and Keeping Teeth for a Lifetime. Um, and, you know, it, it has it focuses on the, the elderly population. Right. What what happens there and what does age uh, have to do uh, in this picture? And, you know, how are they represented um, when it comes to coverage, care, access? Yeah, and I mean, that continues to be a huge issue. I mean, there have been improvements. I mean, the sort of first studies that were done of older people's oral health in Canada were done in the 70s. Um, and at that point, again, you know, the, reading these studies is just horrifying, right? People with these badly fitting dentures, they're sticking wads of tissues into their mouth in order to be able to eat with their dentures. Like, it's really pretty awful. Um, and of course, I mean, you would still see, um, you know, some of that today, but it's not nearly um, as 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 bad as it was 50 years ago. That said, I mean, a lot of older people um, lose their dental insurance once they stop working. Um, so, you know, you that it's it's a it's a group of people that are not particularly well covered by by insurance. Um, a lot of, you know, depending on, you know, what age people are and their level of health and things like that, it can be hard to, you know, if you're living in an old age home to get out of the community to get um, oral health care can be a, a challenge. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really exciting about the fact that dental hygienists now um, you know, can operate their own practices. And, um, you know, a lot of them have started mobile practices where you go into old age homes and things like that, which I think is a really promising, promising development. Um, but yeah, so you have a bunch of people who don't have access to dental insurance. You also, again, depending on people's age, um, you know, may not have had the same access to dental insurance over the course of their their life, right? As I mentioned, you know, people only really start getting dental insurance in the, the 70s. So, you know, for a lot of our elders today, regular dental care, you know, might not have been a very common feature of, of their, their adult life. Um, and then, you know, even if they did get dental insurance at some point, there's a high probability that they didn't, you know, keep it after after they retired. There are some programs, um, again, scattered across the country that that do cover older people, um, you know, as a as a designated group who can access, um, you know, uh, publicly paid paid services. Um, but it's it's really unequal. And yet at this, you know, at the same time, we've seen these big improvements. So. You know, in the 50s and 60s, the focus of dentists was really on children. <laughs> um, they, you know, saw this, you know, baby boom generation emerging. They thought, oh, we can focus on the kids and ensure, like, that this generation has, you know, great oral health. And it's really only in the the 70s and um, 80s when, you know, dentists start to see their practices being a little less busy than they had been in the 50s and 60s when there was such a shortage of dentists that they start to get more interested in treating older populations. Um, 
so you know it it's it take it took a while to to get there but then in the 1980s you start to have um the introduction of dental implants um that of course um has only expanded um so that you know now they've become a very common feature of of dental practice for older people who might be in the process of losing some of their teeth or you know the dental implants can be used to hold dentures in place much more effectively than had previously been the been the case um, but those are very expensive, right? So, um, you know, it's really the wealthier uh, portion of the Canadian population that are getting access to these uh, new innovations like, like dental implants. And, you know, many people just simply can't afford them. Absolutely. They're costly and, you know, time consuming, energy consuming, too. And mm -hmm. um, right. It's 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 hard to have a caregiver or, you know, to have someone accompany um, people to the dentist as well. So I think it's it's a whole process, right, that that goes around um, such a, an endeavor like an implant. Right. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, speaking of, of, of endeavors and complicated things, um, I'm very curious about the, the change from, you know, a health to a beauty service that we, we see um, in Chapter 6, Hollywood Smiles, The Rise of Cosmetic Dentistry, um, that, you know, the, the chapter brings us closer to the cosmetic part of, of things and to the manufacturing of an ideal image, um, you know, from a perfect smile type of perspective. And I just wanted to, to know more, like, how did we go from one to another? And, um, you know, what's, uh, what's the impact it has on, on dentistry as um, both as a business, but al also as a part of, of medicine? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always been an aesthetic element of of dentistry, um, and you know, from the earliest days of Hollywood, you had you know dentists on set. Uh, you know, uh, Shirley Temple famously had veneers that you know covered all of her baby teeth as they were growing in, and things like that. So, um, you've always had that element. And actually, one of the things that really I found really interesting when I first um, started interviewing dentists for this project was how many of them were inspired by the aesthetic elements of, of dentistry. So, you know, they really liked the fact that, you know, that they're shaping um, a, a sort of artistic practice, right? You know, have to match the colors of the tooth. And there's a really sort of creative and aesthetic element to it um, that attracts a lot of dentists to the, to the profession. So I found that super interesting because, like, I think I had always thought of it more as a health service. And I didn't realize that, you know, for a lot of dentists that they, they really liked the fact that it combined um, both the aesthetic and the sort of important health aspect of it. I mean, the other thing that dentists told me, I'm digressing a little here, is actually, you know, compared to medicine, you can relieve pain in dentistry um, often very quickly. And that, you know, that was a really gratifying part of being a, a dentist. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm digressing. Um but so I would say that the focus on cosmetic dentistry really starts with orthodontics. Um, so, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you really only have like a handful of orthodontists in Canada. But by the 1970s and 80s, you have more children like myself getting getting braces and you start to see some sort of significant changes in the technology of braces as well. So, you know, you might have seen those those pictures of the horrendous like headgear that children had in the, the 60s and 70s that would you know push their teeth back. Um, but now by the 80s, you're getting, you know, braces that are invisible or braces that can be worn on the back of the teeth. So they're much less obtrusive than the earlier treatments had had been. Um, and that starts to get a lot of adults interested in um, straightening their teeth as well. So it moves from a service that was, you know, predominantly focusing on, you know, the teeth of children, especially female children, um, to, you know, focusing on on adult teeth. And of course, in, you know, more recent decades, we've had Invisalign, which, you know, makes it even more accessible to people. Um, I think there's a couple things that happened. One is the introduction of dental insurance, um, meant that a lot of people who, you know, had previously, you know, 
you know, been paying to go to the dentist for you know basic things that were now covered by insurance could now think about spending some of those dollars on cosmetic dentistry like orthodontics or um, veneers or other um, interventions. So I think that's partly you know partly there's a sort of a patient push um, or interest in. Um, adopting uh, cosmetic dentistry. But also, and I've mentioned this earlier, you know, you're starting to see uh, a lot of dentists <laughs> in uh, this, the 80s and 90s, and dentists are complaining that, oh, we just don't have enough um, business, especially younger dentists are saying, like, you know, how are we going to build up our client base? And a lot of them do it by promoting um, these kinds of cosmetic services. Um, so in the 80s and 90s, you start to see a huge emphasis in the field of dentistry on um, dental practice management. So you get all these consultants who come in and like tell dentists how to successfully run their businesses. And one of the things they focus on is dental treatment planning. So, you know, how to sort of sell a whole tre treatment plan, which often included cosmetic elements to, to patients, you know, how to cost that out and everything. Um, and you start to get, um, you know, people who are selling weekend courses to dentists on cosmetic dentistry so they can go and, you know, go away for a weekend or a week to train themselves in new kinds of practices that they can offer to their to their clients. Um, the sort of real guru of cosmetic dentistry was a guy named Ronald Goldstein. Um, and, you know, he had you know a coffee table book that like every dentist could like put in their dental office so you know you could flip through it in the waiting room and see like everything that could be done to make your smile more more perfect um and he and other um some of these dental practice uh, consultants start promoting what they call smile analysis. So a new patient would be given a chart about like, what do you like or dislike about your smile? Wow. Um, and, you know, you sort of think about, I've never filled one of those out, but if you, when I looked at them and you know, think about filling it out, you're like, oh, well, you know, not only do you, you know, you're being asked to examine the self in totally different ways. Like I've never, I may have never really thought about my teeth in this way, but now that I think about it, oh, maybe I have a problem there, right? Yeah. Um, so you know, kind of convincing people that they need to do all of this work on their their teeth to make their smiles more beautiful. And of course, this is in keeping with you know the increased focus we're seeing on plastic surgery um, and other kinds of cosmetic interventions over the past. Um, couple of decades. So I don't think it's surprising that, you know, alongside the growth of cosmetic surgery, we're also seeing the, the growth of, of cosmetic dentistry. Um, but, you know, here too, it tends to exacerbate the, the inequalities because, you know, as you um, start to like adopt these very standardized smiles, it means that if you have a smile that doesn't fit, um, if you have missing teeth or visibly stained teeth or really, really crooked teeth, um, you know, it becomes a liability for you in, in social circles or in, you know, especially in the service industry, seeking employment and things like that. So, um, you know, it's become very hard for, for people who, you know, have a smile that is significantly outside of those norms. Absolutely. And um, I think it's it's becoming more and more, um, you know, prevalent in that sense. Um, but, you know, just a, a very, very short anecdote, um, because as you, you were talking about, you know, how dentists are uh, encouraged to manage, right, their, their practices and how you have this, this, these charts, right, that kind of encourage you to think about yourselves in way that, ways that you have never thought of before. Um, I remember a month ago or so, I, re I, I received in the mail these flyers with Invisalign. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were just saying all these things like, well, you know, if you feel like you have low self-esteem and, you know, if you want to do better, here's our service for you. And, you know, it starts at $5,200, uh, uh, the basic treatment, right? Um, so I was a little bit shocked about this connection between, right, so low self-esteem and then, you know, our practice with this uh, the service and then also the cost of it. Uh, well, I'm not sure 
you know, whether you can use your insurance or not. But, you know, just the fact that the flyer came in, you know, on a sunny day to tell you about these things um, was a bit uh, astonishing to me in a way. Uh, I don't know if you ever received those in your, your mail. I, I, I think I draw them up pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, and I, I, you know, that's, it's interesting too, right? Because, I mean, orthodontics in particular has long been... Um, sort of predicated on this idea that it'll vastly improve your your confidence and your self-esteem if you don't have crooked teeth. And there were all these psychological studies that were done, um, you know, beginning in the, the 50s and, you know, through the 70s on, you know, what was the psychological damage on children of having... Um, uh, crooked teeth. <laughs> and of course, like, you know, there was a few studies that showed that, you know, the, the effects were extreme and the dentists, of course, cited those ones all the time. There were other studies that showed that didn't actually have that much of an impact, whether your teeth were crooked on your self-esteem, but um, those were not as much <laughs> cited by the dentists, not surprisingly. Um, but yeah, that, that sort of link uh, is, has been made for a very long time. Um. You know, I mean, I have other anecdotes, but I don't want to take too much of your time. And I was just wondering whether there's anything that escaped the question so far, but it would be important to to add at this point related to the book. Um, I don't think so. I think we've, we've covered it quite, quite well. <laughs> Amazing. And, um, you know, not to, to, to take uh, any more of your time, I just wanted to ask you a last question. And that is, uh, you know, whether you could share with us, um, you know, what you're working on right now, what your current projects are, you know, where they're at and, and you know, things, things like that. Yeah, so I have a couple of projects underway. Some um, are an outgrowth of, of this in that I still have a paper that I want to finish on sort of diversity and discrimination in, in dentistry. I'm, I'm interested in how dentistry becomes an increasingly sort of diverse um, profession and also sort of some of the differences between um dentistry and medicine in that respect. Um, one of the things that is different about dentistry, of course, is that you didn't have to do a residency and, you know, which you do need to do in, in medicine. And so my sense is, is that dentistry actually um, becomes more diverse earlier than medicine because um, it's attractive and particularly to, um, uh, to Jewish uh, people who want to go into the healthcare field in the 50s and 60s who were often blocked um, by the requirement to, to do um, a residency, um, that um, a lot of people chose to go into to dentistry instead. So I'm sort of exploring, exploring um, some work on, on that. Um, and then I've been um, working on a, a variety of sort of COVID-19 uh, related projects. So um, I've been doing a, a project uh, that's nearing the end, I think, on the rise of anti-vaccination sentiment in the 1980s and 1990s, and particularly the links between sort of maternalism and intensive parenting movements in the later decades of the 20th century and the impact that that has on um, people's attitudes towards vaccination. Um, and then... Uh, actually, just last week, uh, uh, epidemiologist colleague and I just uh, hosted a witness seminar um, that involved a lot of the people who were sort of instrumental in various ways to the COVID-19 response in Ontario, um, sort of bringing them together for a, a collective oral history on, on the response in, in this province. Um, and so, yeah, we're working on sort of a, a transcript, which will be the result of that and also some at least one publication out of that. So, so those are the kinds of things I'm working on right now. Amazing. And I'm so much looking forward to reading all of that once it comes up. Um, but, you know, before that, I wanted to thank you very, very much for talking to, to us today about your book and your projects. And um, as I said, I look very much forward to, to hearing more and reading it. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for um, a really in engaged interview and for reading my book and for being interested in featuring it this way. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Carsters. Take care. Bye.